and welcome to the Resilience Podcast. It's Brad Hook here, and today I'm joined by Brian D. Molitor, who is joining me from Michigan. Brian is the founder of Molitor International, an award-winning consultancy that creates positive corporate cultures. He's the producer and host of inspirational TV series on fatherhood that airs internationally. Looking forward to talking about that. The author of 12 books who has been married for 39 years with four kids and seven grandchildren. Brian, welcome to the Resilience Podcast. Hey, thank you, Brad. Thank you very much. So perhaps for our listeners, our audience, you could just share a little bit about your story and how resilience became an important topic in your life. Yeah, well, I've, I've had a um, kind of an interesting uh, background here. Um, certainly not anything typical for somebody that's going to end up as a, as a, a leadership and organizational consultant. Um, in my in my younger years, I did things like semi-professional American football, right? Not soccer, but our football. And I mm -hmm. uh, was a lumberjack for a year. I worked in factories and foundries and and had these, you know, just these unique work experiences where uh, the concepts of resilience and teamwork and leadership, communicating, resolving conflict, they all were very, very real. And uh, at times, you know, some of these were dangerous situations and and um, very stressful situations, very hard situations. And so if one wasn't resilient, uh, you simply couldn't continue, you know, doing these types of things. And then as time moved on and about 40 years ago, I started my own consultancy really to bring about a, a greater sense of unity and kind of peace within the work environment. Um, around the same time, I got married to my lovely bride and we started to have these kids. And um, so the stresses of life begin to add up. And so you're trying to make a payroll, you're trying to get clients, you're trying to keep kids happy. You're trying to have a date night, you know, once every 19 years, it felt like and, uh, <laughs> yeah. it was just very, very challenging. So um, and then in working with a wide variety of organizations, everything from very small uh, organizations to national governments, what I saw was just a a an onslaught to people's sense of well-being. And there's just such stress and such pressure that people are under. And um, some of them just didn't make it. I mean, they're, they drop away, heart attacks and, and all kinds of issues. And it made sense to me that we would not only talk about how do you create a good corporate culture? How do you develop leadership expectations and mission and vision and values, but we needed to bring in this entire concept of resilience, self-care, and organizational care, because without it, we're not going to make it to the fullness of our potential. So I really felt like it was important to begin to focus on those issues. Mm, fascinating journey. If you think about resilience as a topic, and especially in the context of the last five years. Um, why do you think it is becoming increasingly important and, and maybe 
a step back. When you first started, did you find that people were a little bit confused by this concept of resilience, especially at work? Yeah, if you go back, you know, almost four decades, um, at least here in the United States, and I think in many other nations as well, uh, it really wasn't that big of an issue. Things were going relatively well. Money was flowing. Products are being made. Services are being offered. And uh, the, the opportunities were there. Well, if you look at the last five years, this little thing called COVID descended on the nations, plural. And um, I did a lot of research on that. And what I learned is uh, about 80% of the folks um, said that they were very stressed by this COVID experience. And, you know, you go, well, yeah, okay, sure. But no, no, no. We have to understand that organizations, you know, which is the context in which I work, are made up of individuals. And so mm -hmm. the organization was rocked by this COVID thing and short supplies and masking and all those issues. And yet the individuals that worked within the organization, whether it was the CEO or a janitor, were also experiencing their own individual um, assaults, if you will, during that period of time. And in fact, last Saturday, I was, I was speaking to a group of uh, physicians uh, here in the States, and uh, they're all getting higher degrees and so on. So I came in and I, and I chatted with them, and I, and I talked to them some about uh, self-care. Now, these people are going into healthcare, right? They're going to take care mm -hmm. of other folks. And I said, let's do a quick survey of your self-care. And it was amazing, Brad, because every single one of them came back and said that either their diet and nutrition was very poor, they weren't getting sufficient sleep at night, they were not getting up and moving, walking, exercising, you know, those types of things. And they did not have a confidant, someone that they could confide in you know, just to kind of offload some of the emotional things that were really hitting them. And I found this to be somewhat universal now, is that we got rocked by this thing called COVID, but it was an additive. It wasn't like everything else went away. COVID mm. was this giant additive that came on top of other stresses. I did some research here recently, and what I found was that um, one in five Americans, just speaking to the American audience for a second, so one in five said that their mental health had, had diminished in the last uh, 12 months. 60% of adult Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. So if we think about stressors and the reason that we would need to be resilient, you know, that's a tremendous amount of pressure. 13 million Americans were taking uh, medicine for depression. 10 million were taking medicine for anxiety. So again, you think about an organization, whether it's a, it could be a church, it could be a, a manufacturing firm, it could be a, a nonprofit. Um, all of these individuals come in there and they're dealing with all these pressures already 
And now we put in the context of now I work for someone else. Someone gives me instructions. Somebody says I have a job. I don't have a job. So there's a tremendous amount of pressure. And the nice thing about humanity is that we don't like to quit. Mm -hmm. But there, there's, there's part of us that says, I'm just going to hang in there. But why not hang in there with a level of resilience so it's not we're not just suffering through, but we're actually succeeding through. And that's my goal is to help people push through this thing, create strategies so that they can deal with those stresses and that resilience becomes a very real thing to them. Mm. I really liked what you said about that self-care as the starting point. And when you ran that exercise with the group, were some people surprised by even just the exercise and spending some time developing self-awareness and going, hold on, actually, I'm not doing as well as I'd like to. And I work in healthcare, fixing people. And, you know, I'm, my resilience is really low. Yeah, there was, I think the, the, the power of it was I gave them this instruction. I spoke for a few minutes and I said, okay, and I handed them this, uh, just a small little survey thing. I said, just do it mm -hmm. right, right at your seats. It had 20, 25 people there. And then I said, now we're gonna do a lightning round where I wanna hear from each of you. Don't tell me your whole story, but if there's something that you recognize that you should change to increase your resilience, just tell me what that is. And so I started in the back and we just went around from person to person. And about halfway through, you could just see the look on everyone's face that like, oh my goodness, we as a group, are not taking care of ourselves. Yeah. And so it it really became very powerful to see this realization that this is a universal issue, that if we don't take better care of ourselves, it will be very difficult for us to run a business, to be a father, to be a mother, to be a grandparent, um, to be a good neighbor. It'll be very, very difficult. So yeah, I think it did shock them and um, and and I pressed them, this was so fun. I pressed them to make a commitment. So I'd say, okay. So one person says, yeah, I don't uh, I, I don't get enough sleep. And I'd go, okay, so what are you what are you gonna do about it? What will you do? And and they would say things like, Well, I'm probably gonna think about trying to maybe <laughs> and I would stop. Yeah. I would say stop right there. And and I I kid around a lot if I'm doing a seminar or whatever. And I'd say there's a lot of static in here. I couldn't really understand what you were saying. And they'd try one more time. And then I'd go. Then they'd get it. And they'd go, okay, I'm going to go to bed one hour earlier every night. And my next question was, when will you start? And they would say tonight. Yes. I go great. Next person. <laughs> I love that. I love that. It it mirrors our experience at the Resilience Institute uh, c completely. When when we run our resilience diagnostic with groups, we find that most groups, healthcare and beyond, sleep is a major issue. Uh, exercise, nutrition usually score really low, uh, and then there's some interesting factors that we see. Self criticism is really high at the moment. It's one of the factors that really leads to low resilience in in people. So if you score high and self-critical, your resilience is generally going to be 
quite low. The same with worry and fatigue and so forth. Really interesting. So from your perspective, what are some of the steps that an organization can take to build resilience? Yeah, I think I think the the starting point is is <laughs> the starting point for an existing organization is you go back to the very start. In other words, um, well, if I sit with a group of executives that say, you know, we really we've got issues with communication or retention or productivity or profitability, I say, okay, fine. Um, mm. What you need is a revisioning of the organization revisioning because every organization started with someone's vision right the work that you do you had you had a thought it it then was verbalized other people agreed and and it moved on what happens in many organizations is that original vision we drift and either the vision or the values uh we move away from them excuse me and when that happens you have a different organization right you may have seen that at a uh, a restaurant for example you go to a, your favorite restaurant the service is great the food is great beautiful six months later you go back in the service is not great the food is not mm. great well yeah. something changed either the vision you probably have new management but the vision changed or the values changed. So you go back to the start and you say, why does this organization exist? What is the point here? And it's beautiful to watch folks just kind of drift back like, oh yeah, yeah. We're supposed to be serving people. We're supposed to be making the best products in the world, you know, that kind of a thing. And then I think an even more important question is, so what are the values that this organization is to stand by? Mm -hmm. Respect, integrity, um, caring for others, things like that. They're, they're universal, but they can't just be lip service. They have to be very, very real. And so if I can get a group of leaders to say, this is our vision or mission, these are our values, then the next thing you do is then you would do some sort of a survey or an assessment to of all the people there and find out if this is what we want, is there alignment or, or yeah. is there not? And often we'll find that there isn't. So it starts going back to the beginning for a revisioning process. And then slowly you can put together a developmental process that will involve training and coaching and mentoring and all those good things um, to get us back to where we should be. Mm. I think that's such an important point because organizations do drift and priorities change. So, and it's natural, there's nothing wrong with it, but it needs to be understood and articulated. For example, if suddenly uh, profitability becomes more important than you know, integrity or, uh, or customer service, at least we're all aligned on that rather than having that conflict that we're all experiencing. Like we want to give great service, but we can't because at least we're clear about what we want and that will help with decision-making. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because unless you're a researcher mm. or, um, 
an author that simply writes that you don't you don't need a lot of other people around you, but most organizations uh, need at least one other, if not ten thousand others. Mm-hmm. And what happens is over time, the old leave, the new come, and and again, if your culture isn't strong enough in terms of your vision and your values, then new people come in with, they may not have a different vision, but they often have different values. Mm. And so if the culture is strong enough, then the new people are grafted in, they're assimilated in, and they begin to manifest the culture. If your culture is not as strong as it needs to be, or if it's ambiguous, a new person comes in that has maybe a strong personality and they begin to drag the others off into a new direction. And what what I find with organizations is they tend to disintegrate, they disintegrate. In other words, they lose their wholeness, they lose their connection, relationships pull apart. And if you don't have a strategy to continue to build uh, leadership effectiveness and strong interpersonal relationships, then the amount of energy it takes just working with the people issues um, just sucks away the ability to be resilient. It's a very powerful thing. Mm, I love that idea of revisioning. What are some of the roadblocks to building resilience in organizations? Is it resistance from individuals? Is it uh, the culture is just not quite right? They didn't do the planning or what are some of the other roadblocks? Yeah, what, one of the biggest is um, a natural resistance to change. There's a natural yes. resistance to change. Mm-hmm. I think the, the American author Mark Twain said the only person that enjoys change is a baby with a wet diaper. <laughs> now, yeah. the, the rest of us don't like it. And so even when things are bad, to come in and bring about a change upsets some folks. And it's amazing. I remember one client I worked with in uh, uh, Kentucky here in the U.S., where this is an organization of 300 and some people. It was a unionized facility that's, that's about to be closed down, okay? They're not profitable. They had two very nasty strikes. No one wants to communicate with anybody there. And and so the corporate officers said, well, we're we're within months of closing this place down. And I got an invitation to come in to speak with the people there. And I talked with all the managers first. And so here's a room full of managers and they're, they're, they're all sitting there with their arms folded, just looking snarky at me and on. I thought, oh, well, okay. This should be fun. So (laughs) I talked to him for a good hour about the possibilities of positive change. Mm. And I've never seen a group fight harder for their own misery. And they're like, no, nothing's ever going to change. It won't be okay. It's horrible. And I said, okay, you realize you're all going to lose your jobs, right? If we don't do something here. Yeah, but nothing will ever work down here and so on. As I coined a phrase and I still use it to this day. I said, can I get you guys to shift into hostile neutral? So, well, what's that? I said, well, 
you don't have to like it, but at least don't work against us, okay? And it, yeah, okay, but nothing will work. And I, we told you so. And I said, okay, great, thank you. So then I go down the hallway to talk to their union leaders. You know, it's a separate group of leaders in there. And man, we're in a, a room about the size of a small closet in a house. I wasn't a smoker until that day. Because uh, <laughs> they're all smoking. And so this blue yeah. haze is hanging right here. I've never smoked, by the way. <laughs> and they they were just so ornery and so angry and nothing's ever going to work. And I finally hit them with this thing like, hey, how about hostile neutral? Just give us a shot. And they said, okay, but nothing will work. And the quick version <laughs> of the story now is that this, this, this plant went from about to being shut down to the best in every bottom line category Productivity, profitability, quality, delivery to customer, waste reduction, and grievances went to zero in 18 months. And not one single person that had been there had to leave. Now, this was wow. documented. We tracked this for over five years, and I finally stopped measuring it. Okay, So we, we helped them develop resilience by going back to the start, by finding the common ground between them all, which was, we love our families, we want to take care of them, we want jobs and so on, and we want a safe environment and so on. So there was just this resistance to change. But once we overcame it, just some miraculous things happened. It was absolutely beautiful. What a story. That's amazing. Uh, I love the, the idea of hostile neutral. I've been in those rooms myself where there's often a boys club up at the front with the arms crossed. <laughs> like, why have I been told to be in this seminar or this workshop? This, this is a waste of time. And it's, it can be challenging to win them over. But when, once you do, they can become your biggest supporters as well. I'm sure you've experienced yeah. that. Yeah, uh, what's absolutely. The, what's the role of a leader in all of this? Because we hear a lot in terms of inspiring leadership and leaders who are visionaries and affiliative leadership. How can leaders really support that change and help, I suppose, model resilience across their organization? Yeah. Yeah. Without leadership commitment, I mean, that's really the greatest uh, roadblock to resilience within an organization. If you don't have leadership commitment, you have nothing. You have nothing. Because change that comes from below is actually more of rebellion. It's not really transformation. So mm -hmm. we want change to happen from the top down. And so leaders have got to model, you know, what it is that they're saying that they want the organization to be about. Now, it's fairly common to have a statement of mission and, and value statements. But one of the things that we do, Brad, is we create leadership expectations which will be a set of you know, three to seven different qualities that we're looking for leaders to demonstrate. And it will be things like respect and interpersonal relationships and you know, live the values. And so um, if, if leaders don't live those values, if they don't live those expectations, um, they have no right to ask anyone else to, to live them. Yeah. And I've been in places where I've been invited for very short meetings where some CEO or president will call me in and goes, yeah, go, go work with those people out there. And I go, 
you mean all of us together? No, no, just those people need to change. And I would have, uh, I've enjoyed our talk very much. Goodbye now, because I knew there was no hope that you'd ever build resilience into that workforce because they were they were poorly led. So the leaders, uh, it really is all about leaders. And, and now the interesting thing, Brad, is it, it doesn't matter the leader's personality. I know great leaders that are very kind of dour and you know, they're just not happy people, but they live the values, they live the expectations, and they pursue the mission and they will sacrifice uh, they will not ask anyone to work harder than they work. And I know other leaders that are a lot more fun and they're, they're, they're great and they'll get you all charged up and fired up. Personality is not the issue. The issue is, can you live the values? Can you pursue the mission? Can you live those expectations? And when you have leaders that will do that, then, then you're, you're in good shape. And one of the things I told that group of doctors the other day on Saturday was this. I said, look, you have to understand that you are, you are in authority and therefore you can see farther than other people. You get more information, you have more perks, you have, you have more benefits and all these things. And I said, and you've earned that. So don't let anybody tell you that that's wrong. But now that you've earned it, you have to understand that people working under your care are deserving of your care. And if you treat them any different than you treat one of your peers, you need to adjust your thinking because by the grace of God, you ended up as a physician or a surgeon or a CEO or a top administrator and somebody else is serving food in the cafeteria. But there shouldn't be a misunderstanding about the value of that human being versus yours. And so those of us in high position we need to have a mindset of, I am going to be a source of blessing and encouragement uh, for those that don't hold that high position. Now, there's some organizations that they don't wanna hear that, but I won't work with them. But the ones that do, you just see these beautiful transformations where I don't have to, I don't have to feel bad that I've, that I've worked very hard or I got my education or whatever, but I take the opportunity to use my authority to lift other people up. Boy, when you do that, you create a resilient organization. It's a beautiful thing. I love that. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is, success is succession. And the job of a leader is to just uplift everyone else and prepare them for the journey ahead so that they can take the organization to the next level. Because what else is there to do once you reach that point? It's That's, that's it. it. I love that so much. Uh, what about the role of coaching and training like us at the Resilience Institute? Uh, that development pathway is really important. Yeah, here's what we have to understand. We hmm. Anybody that shows up at the doorstep of your business or your ministry, uh, frankly, that comes into your life as a spouse, they're coming with the information, the education, and the experiences up until that moment. Okay. Now, if they were if they were raised in a beautiful environment, if they learned all the right things, if they have manners and they have concern and love for their fellow man and all those things, what a wonderful deal. The reality is a lot of people show up and say, I want a job. 
and they have not been properly trained. Mm -hmm. they, they may not even know how to shake hands correctly. Their work ethic is questionable. They are self-centered, selfish. They don't know resolving conflict is scream, yell, and holler and throw things. Okay. Well, welcome to the team, right? So, <laughs> so, so what we have to do is we have to create a base of shared values. And mm -hmm. I call it ABCs, attitudes, behaviors, and communications. We have to align those so that they help us pursue the mission and live the values. And so training is, is absolutely essential. Um, I don't make any um, excuses about the need to take people where they are and, and agree on a common set of these attitudes, behaviors, and communications and train to those things. Because once we've done that, now if there's a divergent from those things, it means that the person is doing it intentionally as opposed to they simply weren't prepared to know how to fit into the work environment, the home environment, the ministry environment, whatever it happens to be. So training is essential. And we do a lot of training and everything from problem solving to communication, to decision-making, to trust building and so on. So that's great. You have this base. Now where coaching comes in is the higher you go in an organization, the, the more training you've probably experienced already, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're not careful, then you get the mindset of, eh, I've already, yeah, yeah, I've been through seminars. I, I, yeah, I know this stuff. Well, what happens when you get in a high enough position of leadership is we walk around like this with one eye covered because we can't see our own deficiencies. And who's going to tell you? right? Who's going to tell you? It, the people that are upset with your leadership, they're going to come and go, excuse me, sir, but I really don't think, no, they won't. <laughs> yeah, that's never going to happen. So this mm. is where we do things like 360s. We do a 360 degree survey so that, you know, the, the gentleman, the lady that's in that high position can have people without fear of retribution tell them what they really see and then as a professional coach i come in and i go well you know what are these what do these things mean to you where do you think you're falling short where do you think we can grow man the vast majority of people when presented with that with that information they didn't need another seminar what they needed was that one-on-one -on -one connection with with a a respected coach um that is going to be what i call gracefully honest and gracefully honest is a, it's a molitorism that just means we're going to be honest 100% and graceful 100%. I'm not going to tell you something to try to harm you or embarrass you, but also I'm not going to withhold the truth from you um, because that's going to be much more damaging. And if we're not gracefully honest with leaders, sooner or later somebody will be brutally honest with them when they finally had enough, you know? So yeah. training is important, but coaching is also important. And then regular uh, surveys to just it, test the waters. How are we doing? Are we still on track? And when you have organizations that put those things in place, um, 
it's very rare that something's going to sneak up on them and and cause them to um, have to you know miss their mission. Uh, so really important stuff. But I mean, a lot of organizations see it as just kind of this fluffy soft skills stuff. And I'm like, well, you call it soft if you want, but if you if you don't have those things in place, you can have the best product and the best services in the world. But if you don't know how to treat your people and they don't know how to treat their customers, you're on your way out. Mm -hmm. And it starts from the top, as you said. It starts from the CEO at least modeling the behaviors that align with their values. And if you can do that, at least there's no ambiguity. We're all working together and we're all clear about how we operate. Simple, really. It uh, really is. And I like I like that you did you did a demonstration there of that pyramid. Yeah. <clears throat> when I'm when I'm working with a, a, a top group. I will take the pyramid and I go, everybody gets this right. Person at the top, they're all just, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's me up there at the top. And I go, okay, watch <laughs> this. I will turn it upside down and I'll put the pyramid with the point down. And I said, here's the reality. You leaders are the base upon which we build. And if the base is strong, we can build a lot. If the base is weak, there's not much we can build because the ends will start falling off. And uh, it's very sobering, but I think it's I think it's a very accurate representation of how organizations work. So if I can get mm -hmm. that top leader to understand that everything you do, sir or ma'am, becomes the base for all other activities, um, I like I like them to feel the weight of that. I really do. Definitely, definitely. What are your thoughts about young people in the workplace? Some recent research suggests that Generation Z just entering the workforce can hold focus, for example, for between 8 and 18 seconds before getting distracted. We're dealing with the TikTok generation. What are some strategies to help young people? Yeah, that is um, that is a new challenge, isn't it? That is a new challenge. Yeah, it um, really is. It I, really is. I think we're going to we're going to deal with that for a while. <clears throat> I think it starts with <laughs> no surprise going back during onboarding and one of the things we're helping a lot of organizations with is the creation of a new onboarding uh, program. And historically, like we're working with one a manufacturing firm in northern Michigan that historically did a 2-day onboarding program, right? They'd hire somebody, bring them in, do a bunch of slide presentations, say, okay, go out and get to work. Um, in the previous year, they had hired 250 people approximately, and they lost 270. That was their turnover rate. Okay. Wow. I mean, incredible. And so what we're doing with this organization is we're taking a two-day orientation and turning it into two weeks. And okay. we're going to do leadership training, life skills training, hands-on training with tools, and and really start talking with these young people, because most of them are young, about the concept of success. And so when I'm leading those workshops, <clears throat> I just ask them, I go, what does success mean to you? And it is so cool, Brad, because they say the same things that I would say or you would say. They say, I want I want to have sufficient finances to take care of my family. I, I want a family. I want to buy a house. Uh, I want to pay off my car. You know, da da da. 
So, you know, you'd think, well, we're going to hear like, I, I want my own 24 hour TikTok pumped into my brain. And I want to yeah. go eat Skittles on a beach, man, they they get it. Right. And so mm. it starts with this redefining success for them. And once you redefine the success, then you can start talking about, you know, how important, if we really want to be successful the way you described, how important is it to show up to work? Oh, yeah, that's really important because then I get paid and then I da 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 da. How important is it to show up on time? How important is it to work uh, hard when you're there, to take the appropriate breaks, to interact positively with other people and so on? And so it you have to go inside those young people and ask the questions that perhaps nobody's asked them before. They've been told a lot. Well, you should do this and you mm. should do that. No, no, no. I, I like to ask a question. What do you want from life? How do you how do you think we go about getting it? And and I think then that that will um, lend itself to I think better performance on their part. And frankly, a maturing and a, a development of some professional thinking on, on their parts. Now, it won't work mm -hmm. for everybody because there's going to be some young people that are just like, no, man, this is my life. But they will. Darwin is Darwin theory is going to kick in here pretty quickly because they won't yeah. be able to succeed. So it's very it's very doable. But I think it starts with onboarding. And then the next thing is, like we talked about before, the culture and the values. And if you've got, you know, 99% of the organization is living a certain way, mm -hmm. acting proper, interacting with each other, working as a team, staying focused at work, not being on their phone every two seconds, uh, then they can assimilate um, one at a time of these young people coming in. So I'm, I'm, much, more, um, I'm much more optimistic about it um, I think that the young people that really want to succeed are out there and we just have to patiently create the environment for them to succeed. I think they'll, I think they'll be fine. Uh, it's, we, we'll get a few more gray hairs, you know, dealing with yeah. them, but I think it'll be okay. I, I, I'm with you. I think that young people have so much to offer. And this, the, when I speak to younger people out there, they're remarkable in the breadth of knowledge that they have. I remember when I was 18, I knew nothing. I was just so naive about, I still am. <laughs> but, uh, you, you know, you speak to these young people and they have so much knowledge about how to get information that they need and how to solve problems. And I, I think that nurturing them and developing their skills and assimilating them and matching them with mentors. There was a group that I was working with recently and we discovered that young females scored lowest in resilience. And interestingly, in that organization, females over 40 scored highest. So there's a real opportunity there just to mentor each other, like just, just create some uh, forums where you can buddy with someone and have a chat about how you're dealing and the skills you've learned. Isn't that a, a nice way to share skills across an organization? Yeah, that's brilliant. I think this concept of mentoring is one that's going to, uh, it, it's going to play a bigger role as we go forward. Because I, I think, and again, some parts of society, it's like, well, you know, man, once you hit, once you hit 40, I'm, I'm not sure that you're 
I'm surprised you can still walk and chew gum, you know? <laughs> well, some some societies have cracked the code on that a long time ago. And so we we need to go back to honoring our elders and and you don't push them to the side. You create these mentoring moments that I like to call it, where young people can literally just connect with them and they can be coached and they can be mentored and they can be listened to, which is a key part of mentoring. And um, man, if you can get if you can get elders to ask the right questions in the context of work uh, and hear them out and then help them process through where they might be off a little bit, um, it's a beautiful use of those generations and uh, mm -hmm. clearly something that we need to do more and more of. In fact, one of the big clients I worked with here in Michigan was uh, the hospital system. There's, there, there was originally 2,000 people in one hospital and 2,000 in another, and they merged. And so I was invited to help create the culture from the two formerly competing ones. And they, uh, we helped them develop you know, the, the new mission and the values and all that, but we created these leadership expectations. And one of the expectations that I pushed for two years ago was the addition of uh, mentoring. Literally make it part of an expectation that every senior leader would begin to mentor the next generation. And the old way of just I'm gonna I'm gonna hide my information and I'm gonna I don't want anybody to know what I know and that's job security. It's like, uh, sir, ma'am, you're you're only here for a limited engagement, right? The Lion King lied. There's no circle in this business. You come in, you're gonna go out at some point, right? It's so true, so true. <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. And interestingly, on that topic, I did some work with a consulting firm and the very, very senior executives uh, experimented with this, uh, this very, very practical, simple uh, practice once per year, open door policy. Anyone can book a meeting, a conversation, a coffee with a senior, senior executive. And people appreciated those moments. I love your idea of a mentoring moment uh, more than a pay rise. They really just loved being listened to and, and getting a little bit of feedback from someone who they would never, you know, if you pass them in the corridor, you, you, you feel like the king is in town kind of thing. And uh, it's amazing the small things that's, that people appreciate. There's a whole new way to function here. And um, if we do the simple things you and I are discussing, we will increase resiliency in organizations like crazy. Yeah. I would love to hear a little bit about your books. Were you always planning to write books and share your knowledge with the world? Uh, or is this something that emerged along the way? Yeah, it emerged along the way. I think, I think for a while in any field, uh, I, I don't have a giant ego. I mean, I got crushed up long ago. So I think you're, <laughs> you're, you're unclear as to whether you have anything of value to offer anybody. <laughs> let alone write a book and, and help people really understand you don't know what you're talking about. But uh, the, um, I think for me, this was the first book I wrote was a, a business book called The Power of Agreement. That was written uh, back in the 1990s. And um, I wrote it for one reason, because I would, I would travel around the country, I'd travel around the world, and I worked with these organizations, and, and generally speaking, really great things would happen. 
but I recognized that there was one of me. And even when I added staff members, we're just this tiny little, you know, insignificant group. And there are so many organizations and there are billions of people in the world. So I said, look, um, by the grace of God, I've discovered processes that really work to transform organizations and bring about greater resilience. And so let me just write it and give it away and let it. And so if there's somebody else out there that can read this book and go, okay, let's do that in our company. That's really what I wanted to do. And so, um, yeah, I wrote the first book and that was kind of fun. We got some good feedback from really all around the world and it did open up other opportunities to, to, to do some work with youth and some things in Africa and whatever. I mean, it was, it was amazing. And, um, and the other, the other thing that's really on my heart is the resilience of families. And mm -hmm. so I started writing also about parenting and fatherhood and, and creating strategic plans to reach, raise, love, and, and raise up the next generation. And then those books took off and some really fun things happened. They got translated into about seven different languages. And, um, and I just found that through, I think spending as much time as I have, um, you know, married and as a dad and now a grandfather and in the corporate world, um, because this has been my study, which is essentially relationships and leadership culture. Um, I, I understand some things about it now that I think there's value in just mining those thoughts and putting it down on paper and, and, uh, and then giving it out, giving it out to the world. I mean, you certainly don't write books to make money because you don't, yeah, um, not but, yeah. but it's a way that you can help humanity. Uh, you know, if you study something long enough and you learn a few things, then I think it's good to uh, kind of put it down on paper and then give it away. Mm, I totally agree. And maybe a final topic is TV for dads. Well, tell us a little bit about that project. Yeah, TV for dads, man. When I um, I had this really neat revelation when uh, my my oldest son was ten, and and it was just that, um, man, he's he's growing up, and what am I doing very consistently to help him, you know, really transition into into his you know the next phase of life, you know, teen teenagers and so on, and um, so I spent several years just really processing this and, you know, loving my kids and spending time with them and so on, but I'm still traveling around. And it was actually, I was, uh, I was in South Africa over the 4th of July, 1997. And I had 30 hour uh, travel home and I never slept once. And I had a pad of paper and a pen and I was just writing out thoughts because at this point, my son is entering his teen years. And so I said, what, so what do I do? How do I help him make this transition? Because it very clearly is coming. And so I came home and I put together, I didn't even know what to call it, but it basically a celebration or a rite of passage to mark his entering into this new phase of life. And I sent letters out to 30 different guys. And this was in the summer in Michigan where we have like three days that are nice and, and, I didn't think guys were going to show up, but I invited them to come and took my son into this, uh, this hotel room, kind of a nice little room and 30 guys are sitting there. 
So they all came. They brought letters that they had written to him about manhood and growing up and maturity. They brought him symbolic gifts um, and just spoke into the guy's life. We had a time of praying for him and talking about identity. And when I finished that, um, many of the guys came up and said, okay, Brian, we want to do this for our sons and our daughters. So you need to write an outline. And so I sat down to write an outline. Next thing I know, a book showed up. And that thing took off. And then we did a book on raising girls. Then we did a book literally called Mentoring Moments. And so the book started going out. And um, then this was just kind of odd. I got a, I, I, I sent a three-line email. I swear, three lines to a guy in Australia. His name is uh, Warwick Marsh. And he, he's in Wollongong. I had to learn how to say that. Yes. the fatherhood foundation and i said hey man keep up the good work you know because he was working with dads and families and all that stuff <laughs> and uh about a week later my phone rings in my kitchen in my house at 11 30 at night and i picked the phone <laughs> up and and here's this wild man talking to me he said hey brian walk moss to me how are you man so good to hear your voice <laughs> and i don't know what language he's speaking it took a minute you know <laughs> And, and it was so cool because, man, next thing I know, we're talking about kids and raising kids and grandkids, and we got tears coming down our face. And he says, uh, <laughs> he goes, yeah, man, yeah, the Aussies would love your stuff, man. You got to come on over here. You know, it'd be like you run into somebody on the street and you go, we ought to do lunch. You go, oh, yeah, sure, we'll do lunch. Yeah. So so he says, when, when does your schedule open up? And I say, ah, you know, a couple months from now, I got a couple weeks in there. And, and that was it. So, okay, we're done. Two weeks later, 1130 at night, my phone rings in my kitchen. I pick it up and, and it's my buddy. He goes, hey, Brian, walk here. You're all set. I said, what? He goes, yeah, man, you're all set. I go, all set for what? He goes, the tour, the speaking tour, man. Brad, this guy put together a speaking tour all over Australia. Oh, wow. Earth, Kalgoorlie, Sydney, Wollongong, Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, Tasmania, the oh, whole wow. thing. He set it all up. He paid for the whole thing. It was amazing. So got on the plane, went over and spoke two weeks straight. Just went here, there, everywhere. Universities, churches, different groups. Met some wonderful guys out there in Kalgoorlie, Aboriginal leaders. I mean, some of this stuff, we didn't have time to go into it, but it was amazing. One of the last places I spoke was up in the Gold Coast, and um, it was a televised thing, and there was a, a group there from a thing called the Australian Christian Channel. And the um, I always go around and talk to the crew, because sometimes the crew gets ignored, and I just yeah. thank them, you know, for being there. So before we started, and I the, the guy in the middle camera back here, his name is Danny, I'll never forget him. I said, well, tell me about yourself. He says, yeah, man, I'm about to get married. And I said, oh, your family looking forward? He goes, well, I really don't have a family and didn't have a dad. And I'm like, okay, duly noted. So I went up and I talked about intentional blessing, uh, lifelong mentoring, modern day rites of passage, all this stuff, passing on the blessing to the next generation. So I got to the end of the thing and then I had this idea and I said, Danny, put your camera on wide angle and come here up on the stage. And, Poor kid, he's just, eh. 
I said, come on, come on, come on. So I brought him up on the stage and I said, I want every guy in the room here that's uh, that's in the front, 50 and over, come on up here on the stage. I said, this guy's about to get married. He never had a father's blessing. I want you guys to lay hands on him and just speak life in him. Just, just tell him something good about him. Why is it going to be okay for him? So all these old hairy-legged guys come up there, you know, and they're, and they're like, oh, shucks, I don't know. And, well, it kicked in, and they got it. And boy, old Danny, I mean, he just lost it. He's got a lifetime of no dad loving on him. And then here these father figures are. Well, when that was all done, <clears throat> the guy that's the head of that that network came up to me, and he said, he said, man, if you go back home and put any of this on video, I'll help you get it on around the world. I said, what? Sounds good. So came back home and through a series of crazy things that happened, ended up with some equipment. And we did a show called The Drive TV, which was uh, having young guys um, showing that young men could have fun and not you know, be destructive. And then, uh, then I did a show with my daughter called Jenny Seeking the Extraordinary. Again, same kind of thing to inspire young women and it was finally my turn and so we did this show called tv for dads and we've done um father-son outdoor adventure retreats we filmed in montana up in the mountains that there, there in montana we filmed in alaska catching these giant fish and bears running around there and so on uh one of my favorite ones we filmed in uh, in australia um just a phenomenal thing so this crazy show just goes all over the place and we hear we hear nice things from people in different parts of the world and and uh, connecting the generations which just makes me very very happy so we're we're getting ready to do our next um, series will be a uh, kind of a documentary on really fatherlessness in america and then mm -hmm. i'm talking with uh, a couple of my buddies over there in australia tay and and uh, sammy uh, that were just a phenomenal crew. And so we're talking about coming over uh, a year from now and spending a couple of weeks and going to Australia and coming to visit you in New Zealand. I would love that. Love the opportunity. Yeah, what a, what a journey. And uh, creating these rites of passage is something I think that is missing from modern, modern civilization. You know, we kind of just... Uh, rush our way through, constantly striving to tick boxes and get to the next thing without really acknowledging where we've been, where we're going, and getting that support from others who've been there already. I love it so much. And I'm definitely going to get a copy of the the, the Girl's Passage book because having an, a nine-year-old daughter is confusing for me, for her, probably for, her, for all of us. Uh, so we'll definitely be getting that. Brian, thank you so much for your time. This has been a very inspiring conversation. Well, Brad, thank you. I, I've enjoyed it, man. You're you're a good guy. I can tell. I can tell. You love oh. what you do and, and you're good at it. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, buddy. Thank you so much. For everyone who would like to connect with Brian, visit molitorinternational.com. That will be in the show notes below. And check out TV for Dads on YouTube. Brian. Thank you again. Uh, we'll see you in New Zealand. Sounds good, mate. Bye-bye. Take, take care. See you, everyone. And thank you for joining the Resilience Podcast. See you next time.